ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Rachel Massa is an actor and theatre director. Some years ago, Rachel embarked on an epic road trip with her baby son and her sister. They drove from Melbourne to the Torres Strait to Mare Island, where her grandfather, Wagwan, was born. The island seemed like a kind of paradise to Rachel. But in the 1920s, her grandfather was taken from Mare Island to a prison island off the Queensland coast. On Palm Island, his life was governed by the Aboriginal Protection Board. It was a place of near totalitarian control and extreme punishment. Rachel Mazza's family story has never been far from her mind. Like her dad and her granddad, Rachel's often been considered cheeky, which is a code word for insisting on being treated like a human being. Rachel is currently the artistic director of the Ilbidgeri Theatre Company. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Richard. Thanks for having me. I, I want to start talking about your granddad, whose name was Wyborn. Tell me how your grandparents came to live on Palm Island in Queensland. So my grandfather, Wagwan, was obviously a Torres Strait Island man from Murray Island, same island as the Mabo story. And there was the coming of the light had well and truly moved into the Torres Strait. And uh, Queensland uh, Protection of Aborigines Act was well and truly active and Aboriginal people were basically being uh, removed off country and onto missions all over the country. And so my grandfather in 1921, uh, along with 16 other Torres Strait Islander men, were kicked off Murray Island or Mare and sent to Palm Island. And in a similar, a couple of years earlier, my grandmother who's a Yidinji, um, that all that country below Cairns, um, rainforest country, there was a whole roundup of uh, Yidinji mob over, over some time. Um, but she was in the wave of uh, mob that was then rounded up and also sent to Palm Island in 1919. So, so that was thinking that you could just bring people from the Torres Strait and put them on somewhere like Palm Island in Queensland. This is, this is how the uh, government rolled in the day. We looked up some of the rules that governed the life of Aboriginal people on Palm Island uh, on mm -hmm. the, under an act that's called the Aboriginals Protection and Restriction of the Sale of Opium Act, 19, <laughs> 1897 That's the is. one. No walking down Mango Avenue, no sitting upstairs in the cinema, no cash economy on the island, no talking to young women during work time, no waving to your wife without permission, <laughs> no laughing or whistling after curfew. Whoops, sorry. No, yes. Well, it's not curfew yet. Uh, all natives returning from visits to the mainland must present to hospital to be checked for venereal disease. No talking to a white person. No traditional languages. No traditional ceremonies. Look, I could be here all day reading the rules, but that, that's kind of interesting. What was the? Th you've looked into this act, I'm sure. What was the thinking that governed this kind of extreme control? The act, without a doubt, was a continuation of the the how are we going to uh, manage the Aboriginal problem? So the colonisers were hell-bent on colonising the country, quite obviously, and Aboriginal people were in the way. So unquestionably, one of the strategies that came into place around the mid-1850s was the realisation that it wasn't going so well, this uh, interaction between whitefellas and blackfellas, and cities and populations were starting to expand, and hence the idea, let's try and round them all up and put them on missions or reserves uh, as far away from population as possible. Part of it seems to make them more culturally similar, to break, break away from the old culture and make it more culturally similar to the, the larger white population of the island. What Australia. would become uh, what now is known as the assimilation policy. So the idea that uh, you break away communities, people from their country and ban them from practising their culture, their language, their dance. Um, they would only be taught Christian values and, and English education, very minimal, only up to, the, uh, up to a young age. Uh, and then they would basically be sent out to be either domestics or labourers. So this whole idea that you would be able to assimilate Aboriginal people into white society, but only at the very lowest rung. The people that were selected to go to Palm Island, were they singled out as troublemakers or other kind of unsuitable people? Uh, well, like my grandmother, all the Yudinji mob were actually just moved off. It was just, so there was a mass, it was a dumping ground, but it also became 
known as the place where you sent troublemakers. But being a troublemaker was, was and the term that they used a lot in those days in the, when you read the records is uh, they were cheeky. So if you were a cheeky black fella, you got, your punishment was getting sent to Palm Island. Hilariously, if you were a cheeky black fella on Palm Island, your punishment was getting kicked off Palm Island. So they were just kicking people on and off, <laughs> which is what happened to my family. How did your grandparents come to marry then? So my grandfather, as I said, had arrived in 1921, a couple of years after my grandmother had arrived. And the story goes, because I was quite fascinated, I was like, how come a Torres Strait Island man ended up marrying an Aboriginal woman? Because they're like oil, oil and water. They don't mix and they don't particularly like each other. And uh, apparently the superintendent on the island at the time, Mr Curry, pointed across the grounds at my grandmother and said to my grandfather, before they were with my grandfather and grandmother, um, what do you reckon about her? Do you like her? And uh, he kind of squinted his eyes and looked across and went, oh, yeah, she looks all right. Okay, well, you're marrying her. They got partnered by the superintendent and uh, I imagine my grandmother didn't have any choice in the matter. I don't know if many Australians are really fully aware of the intense degree of social engineering that was going on here in, the, in the places like Palm Island. Which is kind of uh, astounding to me. And not no, not the astounding. Astounding that we don't know our history, but but actually, it's it's so that's heartbreaking because we need to know and acknowledge the history of this country in its full ugliness, if you like, because um, how are we going to move forward otherwise? And the and the impacts on my family, in, uh, like all Aboriginal families, is massive. So my grandmother was a very unhappy woman. And didn't know her language or her culture. And when my she was married with a Torres Strait Islander man, she didn't, having been indoctrinated into the Christian brainwashing, she didn't approve of him teaching the kids any language or dance. Because as in her mind, and, and I totally understand where this was coming from, is if we are going to survive... The majority of our mob have been entirely have been massacred and whatnot. If the rest of us are going to survive, we're going to have to learn how to fit in. It doesn't. I think your granddad sounds like a different kettle of fish. What? Because it doesn't sound like he did want to uh, fit in to a huge extent. Well, tell me how he was. Uh, how he was Man, then he was again kicked off the island? Yeah, he was. He was absolutely at every point because we are. You know, as you do, you start doing your family research, and in all these records that have been made their way to the archives, my grandfather. Um, was an absolute rebel, kicked off Palm Island because he refused to work unless he was getting paid like a white man um, for being cheeky, for all that t- terminology was being used. He was kicked off to the mainland. He then started working for these particular farms or whatever and telling them that, that he wasn't under the act because he was a Torres Strait Islander, so a, a little fib, so that he could receive his full wage. Your wage was looked after by the average, it was immediate. All of it went to the Aboriginal Protection Board, and a small portion of it was given back to you as pocket money. So, where did your granddad and his family go once they were kicked off the island and sent onto the mainland? Not, not far off the coast. There, Ipswich, um, various places around Queensland. Uh, eventually, my dad went to high school in Cairns. But the the your lot as an Aboriginal person was working in in industries like sugarcane, the railway line, uh, the quarry, the fruit cannery, the tannery, all that sort of stuff. So, kind of really kind of menial, low paid work. At some point here, your dad is born. What do you know about your dad's young life growing up in those circumstances? There's like about two photos that I've seen of my dad as a child. So there's so much of the story that I would love to know more of, to be honest. But basically, uh, he's the youngest of five kids. Um, He got as far as 15 in high school at Cairns, uh, Cairns High, married quite young. Um, He was an absolute favourite in the family. um, Why was he a favourite in the family? Well, and I think it might have been the well his personality, but also he was being the youngest of the five. So all his nieces and nephews were the the age gap wasn't so huge. So he was like the 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 favourite uncle who would basically this is in the day, of course, before TVs and iPods and iPhones and all that rubbish. Um, he was the entertainment. 
So there was constant shadow puppetry or storytelling, um, singing, playing on the guitar. He was a hilarious comedian. Um, he was an absolute natural entertainer. And it was interesting. Um, obviously, that's how I knew him growing up. But talking to the family, actually, all those years ago when I was on, when I worked at Message Stick, I actually did a little doco, a little half hour doco on dad. And it was during that time that I was talking to a lot of family and cousins, which a lot are older than me, but they all shared this same story of what, of this lovable uncle that they Very entertaining The favourite uncle because he was such a natural entertainer. What was he doing for work in those days? Working in the quarry. In the quarry. Yeah, when my mum met him, which was up in Queensland, just outside of Cairns is a little place called Holloway's Beach. Uh, mum had just done her first year at art college in Melbourne. My mum's Dutch. She's white. She came to Australia on the second boat from Holland um, after the Second World War. The economy had totally crashed in Europe and had started a uh, college, art college, had and in, in her end-of-year holidays, uh, went up with some friends and ended up hitching, and or they drove, and then, then then hitching from Cairns to Holloway's Beach, where a few months of living on the beach, actually, as she describes it, it was like walking into paradise. Absolutely blew her mind, uh, this whole other world. Black fellas everywhere, sitting on the on the sand dunes with their guitars singing and a warm soft breeze blowing off the ocean, blue waters, the, the coconut fronds blowing in the breeze. You know, just like exactly what you described, paradise. So there's mum walking along going, I've just discovered paradise. So there's your mum on, on Holloway's Beach. Was this where your father first clapped eyes on your mum? <laughs> so the story goes. What did he think? Apparently he had a photo, which I've never seen, but apparently he took a photo of mum because she would have to walk past his shack or whatever they lived in, uh, on the way to go to the shop. She, she had a, a, a cabin or shack or whatever it is right down the end of the beach. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, had been spotted by Dad, and, but it wouldn't meet him for a couple of months later till she was at a New Year's party. So he noticed your mum, but she didn't notice him perhaps at this time. He, he noticed her well enough to take a photo. How did they actually <laughs> get together then? Well, apparently there was a New Year's party and he would in true Bob Mazza style, had the guitar out and was singing and, at every, you know, obviously would have had everybody entertained and mum spotted him basically at that point and, and she, she, she tells it, the thought that went through her head, he's the one. Really? <laughs> she was absolutely, she said she'd never had that thought before. She never had that thought again. It was the, it was really clear to her. <laughs> you see, we've had plenty of, I've had lots of people come on this program and say, where you get the thunderbolt moment, where you meet that person. You I go, know. Oh, bang. But it nearly is always men. And they eventually nag women into liking them and agreeing to marry them after that <laughs> time. But it not, it's, it's not as often that women do that. That's kind of interesting your mum did that. Yeah. Or do they just not let you know? Maybe they're, just, just, <laughs> they're a bit more shrewd than that, perhaps. Now, your dad was already married at this point. Was it difficult? Yeah. And, and uh, of course, he was, he was a Torres Strait Islander so, uh, and part Aboriginal as well. Did this yeah, mean it was difficult for them being together? It breaks my heart when I, when I – because I didn't know that's part of the story till a lot later. So, yeah, he had two young sons, two and four, who were my oldest brothers. And I have to say, my dad had several wives, <laughs> not necessarily married, but um, I, there's actually nine of us and, and we've all grown up in different states and different different mothers. But um, it's actually extraordinary that somehow the spirit of our father, which was one of joy and celebration and loving life, somehow has filtered through to all of us so that there was never any kind of feeling of, um, I don't know, you know, we love each other as brothers and sisters, regardless of, you know, what, what might be, we might have very good reason to hate each other. But with your mum and dad getting together, was that considered problematic in Queensland? In oh, of course. My dad walked out on his wife and his two kids. So, yeah, they basically did a runner. They eloped. They, um, when uh, dad's, uh, and she's now passed away, um, bless her, she um, had discovered that he was seeing my mum. <laughs> she comes up to the door, knocks on the door and goes, are you sleeping with my husband? At which point <laughs> mum went, yes, <laughs> expecting to get punched in the face or something. Anyway, and then uh, she walked away and mum was like, okay, we've got to leave. Oh, i got to leave. Um, but they they agreed to both leave, so How they eloped the next it? day. Oh, they eloped the next day? Yeah. They went, uh, actually went up to Darwin, where I was conceived, and <laughs> and then down to Melbourne. And actually I look back on it and I often think 
you know, like he's my father. He's a young man, 20, 21, and he, um, he, he looks at his life. I mean, I don't think we do this consciously. You go, okay, here I am working in the quarry. I could be working in the sugar cane. I could be working picking bananas. You know, where, what's my lot? And here's this woman that comes along as a doorway to another world. So it was when my father came down to Melbourne and was discovered singing in a cafe that he was approached by someone from the ABC who basically went, um, you ever thought about acting? And then he got that role in Bellbird all those years ago. Your dad was in Bellbird? Yeah, hell yeah. He was a lawyer. Wow. Yeah. I know, and it's, there's some fantastic footage. God, I hope you guys haven't thrown it out. Anyway, uh, <laughs> well, um, yeah, so he discovered the arts. I mean, obviously he was always an artist in terms of his mu- music and whatnot and a natural entertainer. But, um, yeah, he, he got into acting from that moment and into politics. He also, also became the president a couple of years later for the um, Aboriginal Advancement League. This is when you come into the picture, though, Rachel. You were born around about this time. Yeah. What, what happened after you were born in the hospital? Ah, that, my mum, I mean, obviously everyone's really young, but luckily my mum wasn't too young. So my mum's now 20 when I was born and she's a white woman with an Aboriginal baby. I was born preemie so that the nurses, uh, the, the doctors or whatever, took me away when I was born. And she, she tells the story how she was lying in the bed and kept asking, when am I going to see my baby? When am I going to see my baby? Three days later, she's starting to get, you know, irate. Excuse me, when am I going to see my baby? At which point the, the woman goes, oh, uh, just, just hold on a moment, goes off, comes, a, another woman comes back in with a clipboard and a form. And on that, on that form, or what that form is, is an adoption papers. And so basically there's this whole conversation around does she consider herself to be a potentially, you know, have the opportunity for her to give this child a good life, you know, as a single woman, married to an, I mean, partnered with an Aboriginal man, but you're not even married. You know, given the circumstances, wouldn't you be better off adopting? And I, I think back at that moment and I think, oh, my God, that decision, well, it never was an option. Like mum was steadfast and had she been younger? You know, had she potentially been younger and, and allowed to be bullied by that by that system, I might have been a, a goddamn. My whole life would have been life. yeah. People in those days I were taught to respect believe. people with clipboards. I mean, in lab coats and clipboards. I mean, yeah. it's very easy for people to be intimidated, uh, particularly yeah. in those days, even and now. She, and you know, understandably, she might have looked ahead and gone, "Yeah, what what future do I have?" Yeah. So I just you know, I love my mum. <laughs> So you mentioned your dad at this point was acting and then got interested in politics as well. I have seen footage of your dad from this time and he's he's a real dude. Like he's got a fro. He's, <laughs> he's, he's making his case quite forcefully. He looks kind of – he's very handsome and he, he kind of looks – he actually looks and sounds like a Black Panther from the United States. <laughs> he, you know, he's got that kind of vibe going on. He just needs a leather jacket, that's all. Was he influenced by the Black Panther movement? Was he in, in touch with that in any way? I mean, the awareness of the political movement that was happening internationally was very on the on the um, uh, you know on the forefront of everyone's minds, and hence a delegation went to uh, America to basically meet up with the Black Panthers. And your dad was part of that. And my dad was part of that delegation. On the way back, though, a splinter group went off to Harlem to meet meet up with the National Black Theatre of Harlem, and it was at that point that my dad and I think. Um, Sol Blair might have been with him. The they met up with the Harlem Theatre Company, and and I mean that was extraordinary how influential that trip was, of, amongst other influences. But certainly, um, they came back with a lot of you know inspiration and, and ideas that that were then implemented, including setting up the Pig Watch, uh, which turned into the Aboriginal Legal Aid, um, which was the beginning of free legal aid in Australia. Uh, the Aboriginal Medical Service, the Feeding the Children program, which became um, Child Care Centre, um, and National Black Theatre Company, which uh, were well, actually the first one, though, was in Melbourne called Nindathana, and then the year after is when our family moved up to Sydney from Melbourne and uh, Dad established, along with others, the National Black Theatre Company. Was, was he involved in the, the early days of the tent embassy in Canberra as yeah. well? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, in fact, I have this fraction of a memory of being there 
we weren't there when the when the police stormed in, but it mustn't have been long before it was about to happen because it was thick in the air, and obviously they were already coming once and been and then moved on, and then the crowd was really building, so it was somewhere in between. You must have been frightened um, as a little. Kid. I was. Absolutely. I remember the visceral feeling of being scared for my life and really wanting to just get the hell out of there. I, I felt really, really... Un, yeah, it's it's amazing to reflect back, um, you know, on what was such a kind of extraordinary pivotal moment in Aboriginal politics and, and in politics for Australia. What would see um, very much the the incoming of the Whit- and the success of the Whitlam government coming in was very much very heavy on his agenda was land rights. So you'd moved to Sydney and mm-hmm. you went to school in Sydney. Whereabouts were you being schooled at that time, Rachel? When we first went to Sydney, we actually moved into this famous house that's now known on Regent Street, Redfern, as kind of like the main gathering house for for a lot of this black political movement and I actually originally went to the to Redfern Primary and I we only were there for six months and I did not like it at all. I, I just remember running across a playground being called racist names, you know, being insults being shouted at me as I ran to, to avoid. <laughs> so anyway, it didn't last there long. Uh, but then by then I went to Wallara Demonstration Primary. I would then go on to a couple of high schools, Dover Heights girls, and then eventually Sydney girls. So, so hang on, you're in the, suddenly in the richest part of the eastern suburbs of Sydney, by the sound of things at this point, with all Renton Vaucluse, Wallara, that part of Sydney. Grew uh, up, grew up in Paddington. It was a little, admittedly, it was a little housing department house right. owned by this um, insanely crazy old couple, but but the rent was cheap. How did you get on, sort of, so, growing up amongst a bunch of rich kids? Then? Yeah, well, that all happened in my lifetime. So there was a lot of housing commission houses around and slowly that was changing right in front of us. Families were moving into houses. Actually, what we noticed, because all us kids used to play on the street and, you know, you'd just be playing cricket across the street and then you'd get someone going, car, and we'd all run off the street and then as soon as the car had gone past, run back on. The end of street cricket is a disaster, I think, in (laughs) Australia. There's got to be laws to actually privilege the playing of street cricket or bring it back. Yeah, but then this generation of people moved in who... They wouldn't let their kids' hands go. So they'd walk down the strip with the kid holding their hand and the kid would ne- wasn't allowed out of the house. So these, suddenly there was this generation yeah. of people who locked their mm. kids in the house. So that was the beginning of the end of um, the character of Paddington. So there was a moment you must have had where you turned to your father, Bob Mazza, the actor, and said, but father, I want to act. Was there that moment? Hell No. Oh, no, no, I lie. When I was a kid, actually, yes. You did say you wanted to act. Yes. Well, I didn't actually say it to him. It's a thought. So basically they, one of the first productions that they did, did in the National Black Theatre Company was um, The Cake Man um, by Robert Merritt. And they were looking for a kid actor to play the boy Pumpkinhead. And we were young at that stage, whatever it was, seven and nine, my sister and I. And um, I remember thinking... The, the excitement around being in the play. Not that I ever said I wanted to be in it or I wanted to be auditioned, but the fact that I didn't even get asked and, but my sister was asked proved to me at that moment that I was never going to do acting <laughs> and that was it. I, I, nev- I put a lid on it from then on. Really? Yeah. So It was de- totally devastating to me that my sister was asked to be in the play and not me. So how Even did- though I was too old and look, would look too like a girl where she was still at, at that before puberty age. Yeah, I know. And there's the rival for a role that's called Pumpkinhead and it's a boy after all <laughs> and anyway. She was, and tr- and yeah. truth be known, she was much more of an extra- extroverted personality than me. I was a bit yeah, shy. Yeah, but, but you would have gone, what about my needs? Shy. What about my needs? Uh, yeah, but- <laughs> yeah, in, t- in my exactly, head. In your own I was head. devastated, traumatised. But then you ended up going to WAPA, the West Australian Academy of Performing Arts. Yes, uh, I was quite... Quite a bit older by now, by 24. A bit older. So you then you did find the courage to come forward and think. Because it does well, take a lot of courage to do that. I don't know about courage. It was literally like, what else can I do? I tried. I tried for years to try and think of something else. I thought At first I thought I'm going to be an osteopath. <laughs> but I dropped out of um, high school, so that didn't go very far. Anyway, I was like, oh, I don't know. And eventually I had to come to the point where it was the only thing I really 
that really had some fire in it for me that I was actually excited about. So I, I really wanted to try and find something else because I, I didn't want to follow in my father's footsteps on principle. I wanted my own pathway. So but anyway, I, I suppose going to oh the well. other side of the country to study acting is not a bad way to go about that. Well, that's right. that was it. my plan. I that thought, well, at least I'll go as far away as I can so where, where no work? one will know him. Did that work? Were you still Bob Mass's daughter when you went to Whopper Exactly. Anyway? So the late and, and beautiful man, um, Jeff Gibbs, who was running the college at that time, was like, oh, Bob Mazza's daughter. <laughs> as, as I walked in the door and I was like, uh, oh, well. Have, have oh, well. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, there was a point though, five years, six years in, and I'm doing a bit of work, my own work, um, with my own name. And uh, he came up to me and he goes, oh, you know, it's it's um, I'm starting to get, oh, you're Rachel Mazza's father. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Did you ever work as actors together? On any TV Yeah, one of my very first TV gigs actually was on Country pra- Practice and he played my dad and I was a lawyer <laughs> working, representing um, Peter Phelps. You, you, you guys connected over Wandon Valley. That, that has Which to be the whitest, whitest mm-hmm. TV set in the, in, in, the, in the world. And actually mum and dad had separated so I'd actually had a lot, hadn't had a lot to do um, with dad for that last 10 years really, you know, on and off, little, little gatherings on, on um, Christmas and birthdays, but really not a lot to do with Dad. So actually, I'm now an adult, I'm now working, and to work with Dad, adult to adult, was was such a privilege and an honour and a joy to get to know Dad like in that way. Um, we did, we worked again uh, a little bit later in the first all Aboriginal TV series. Well, not all, Kate Blanchett was in it. But anyway, <laughs> Heartlands, which was a um, another ABC production. I think he was my uncle in that one, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it was really coming, that, that feeling of coming full circle. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler on ABC Radio. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. So in the in the 90s, you decided to embark on an epic road trip, Rachel, from Melbourne to the Torres Strait. What was the thinking behind that? Well, I'd actually got pregnant <laughs> and I had my baby and his name's Ari. And uh, it, was that, it was that year where I'd been doing quite a lot of acting work and, and it was like, oh, I've got this baby. I can't really work for a while. <laughs> so I, t- I went to my sister, uh, Lisa, and I was like, you know what? And and you know what? It was actually about having a baby. Like suddenly this feeling of who am I, where do I come from and what am I going to pass on to this little person? So this kind of, you know, deep moment was happening and I basically, I, I need to go back to country. So you place yourself in time and space a bit more, do you think? I, well, just to kind of know mm. as, a, as an Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander woman in this country and, the, and, the, and I know I've never actually been on country on that one side of my country. So I've never been to the Torres Strait. And I was like, turned turn to my sister Lisa and I was like, we've got to do it. And actually I've got this baby now and I can't be working for a while. Like, oh, I want to do it. I'm just going to go up there now. Why not? And she was like, yeah, let's do it. And I was like, okay, we're doing it. So, yeah, we basically jumped in the car and drove all the way up. How do you actually drive to the Torres Strait? Like you go all the way, what, to Cooktown? Or you go beyond there, up into, no, into no, the no, communities the, up there? Well, or, you could. Yeah. I would have loved to have done that, but you need a four-wheel drive to, yeah. get, to drive right up to yeah, the Cape. Yeah, you do. So, how so did, how did, we what, just went up as far as Cairns right, and then you fly. Right, into, into what, Thursday Island Mounts. or something, yep. somewhere like that? It lands on Hall Island and then, and then you ferry across to... Thursday Island, and then another ferry too. And and what what did you see when you got there for the first time? It was the most stunningly beautiful picture of paradise, like the the ex- insane blue, like I have never seen turquoise, crystal clear blue water, flat. Uh, white sand, um, green leaves of the coconut trees and, and the banana trees, the bright red of the hibiscus, <laughs> French pennies, and and 
I mean, that was we're sitting on the beach there, and there's this big. You look out through the water, and you can see that there's uh, what must be sort of rock, you know, a line of rock all the way out. So this big, thick black line in the middle of this blue water, going past. And I'm like, oh, I wonder what uh, you know looks like some sort of reef or something. Anyway, next thing in this beautiful floral dress, this shining black skin of this Torres Strait woman walks past us with this net, fishing net. She throws the net into the water. And I kid you not, throws it into the water, the net slightly sinks and then she pulls it out and walks out again and it's full of these fish. So that black band was actually a band of friggin' fish. I was like, oh, my God, this place is insane. I'm just going to go down and grab some fish <laughs> for lunch. <laughs> who lives like that? I mean, honestly. Who does? Well, she did, does, clearly. <laughs> um, how good does the – I've never been to the Torres Strait, uh, but, but I know that part of the world a little bit. Uh, how good does the air smell in that part of the world? Like the saltwater smell? Yeah. And then there's the frangipani and everything else that's coming off the trees. It smells yeah. amazing, I watched this doco with – um. Attenborough, <laughs> and he's talking about the acidification of the ocean. And he, he, he um, talks about how it's not so much about heat, the, the warming, it's actually about carbon dioxide in the air and the ocean's absorbing the carbon dioxide that's acidifying the ocean. And then he does this, he projects this huge map of the world and where it's red and orange and yellow and uh, is how acidic it is. But where it's blue is where it's alkaline. And the only band of blue was the Torres Strait. That's why it feels so good up there. I couldn't believe it. Is communal singing a thing in the Torres Strait? Oh, my God. There would be, there was while we were up there a big gathering and it was the most extraordinary feast. These tables and tables and tables of food, like there was no limit to this delicious divine and the smells of this yummy food. But anyway, before even that was the dancing. That went on for hours and hours of, oh my gosh, amazing dancing with extraordinary 17-part harmony singing. <laughs> I exaggerate somewhat. Rach, but- why are you here? <laughs> why, why aren't you wearing right? some kind of floral print dress and just, and just going and picking fish out the ocean and singing all day? I know. It sounds pretty good. I sort of want to be there now. Oh, seriously. Yeah. It really is the place to be. So is the singing And there- the law is so strong. What traditional law? Well, you know, obviously, I'm I'm speaking like a like someone who doesn't know because I don't know. I don't. I didn't grow up culturally, but um, one thing you note when you're walking around is like, oh, there's no fences. That's because they have these really full on strict laws about you don't go where your foot is not welcome. If you have not been invited onto that bit of, into that house, you don't walk into that garden. So do people know where that line is? Then they just know. Yeah. They? And I thought, isn't that extraordinary? How, what, how sophisticated is that? We don't need fences. <laughs> Not like some people. <laughs> yeah, so it's pretty, like, very strict. Oh, another, another extraordinary, um, uh, like, you just think of that, you know, the sophistication of family systems to ensure that there's no mucking around and people understand their place within the community family structures. So, you know, you hear about all that, people have got their skin names and all that stuff. One, one law that we were in the house there and we're going, hey, Lise, hey, what are we going to cook for dinner? And that auntie we were staying with, Mrs um, P, she comes running in and she goes, don't say that word. And we're like looking at each other going, um, what did we say? What do you want to cook for dinner? You mean dinner? And she was like, no, the other word, the C word. And I went, cook. Don't say that word. That's the name of the, um, the in-laws that live in the next house and you don't say the name of the in-laws. You don't get intimate with the in-law names. So that's how you keep an arm's length respect for that family so that there's no carrying on. Once there's marriage, that there's a distance that you wow. have to, a, a respectful distance that you keep so no one's getting too familiar across those married lines. <laughs> like, oh my goodness. Yeah, like <laughs> sophisticated. Christian religion's big in those parts, isn't it? And part of that is comes, Massive. Into, the, comes into the singing too. I, I used to live near a, a church with uh, Pacific Islander people and you'd walk past it sometimes and hear oh this heavenly God. singing. There's some extra notes in there. It makes it sound kind of electrifying. There's a little bit of these extra notes that have got a tiny bit of dissonance in them that make it really quite hair-raising and moving. And There's really, really, and I can't pretend to say, I don't know, like I said, didn't grow up, 
but there's a really specific way of harmonising that is unique to the Eastern Islands. And it's really, and it's, I mean, because the music's not uh, gospel, it's definitely heavily got Pacific Island Papua New in influences in the music, but it's very distinct. And the and like particularly that high women's harmony that comes in, which no way can I do that. But yeah, the singing is such a big part of of the culture. Like actually, the singing with the the song, like that that Laura I, t- I was explaining about how you don't take what not yours, you don't step onto land that's not yours. That's embedded in the in the. I won't try and pretend to sing it, but they've got. Uh, there's one of their big songs that they do, and I've heard it a thousand times, and I didn't realise that oh, that's what that one means. So you're, it's inseparable: the song, the dance, the law, and and language, and and your your understanding of your place within society, your understanding of of um, uh, the realm of spirituality. All of that is explained and and practiced and lived through song and dance, like it's all all enmeshed and it actually becomes an expression and an ongoing um, practice of the culture itself. Were you changed by going there? There was definitely a, a, a feeling of something getting getting completed, like a sense of an, an understanding of what that is, of, of what that is in me that belongs there. And that's kind of weird because I would probably, I don't know that I'll ever live there. Um, to be honest, I have such a kind of strong pull and connection with Melbourne. Um, but, yeah, without a doubt, there was a, a feeling of completion. And I, and I definitely, but, it all, but in the same instance, I also have, I'm, I'm aware of what I'm missing out on. Yeah. So it's a like, kind of a longing as well. Yeah, I was just going to ask you that. Mm. Like a, a kind of feeling of reintegration, but with a little but longing. But then I'm leaving it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's like, oh. You were an actor for a while. What was frustrating about being an actor in Australia at those, in those times, Rachel? I mean, the industry has changed, I must say. Since when I started, so I graduated from Whopper in 92, and you're doing roles on, you know, guesties on TV shows or in films and you're always only the small role because the main role will, will always go to the Kate Blanchett's of the world um, and the, it's written by white people and it's written badly. And you spend a lot of your time in the rehearsal room, which is squadly dits. You don't rehearse for TV and film, like very little. You, you generally spend one sitting and reading and you you have you know, that window of opportunity to, to let your opinions be known. Like if there's anything you think, you know, it's really wrong, they need to fix this, and you've got the clock, you know, beaming down you, your face going, well, there's not really any time for any big changes, so we're going to have to go on, you know. And so this so the most unbelievably soul-destroying experience as an actor. So you'd get extraordinary ignorance, even just something like I'd be turning up for a book reading and there'd be a whole lot of language through it and I'm going, okay, um, so in terms of that language is coming from the Aranda, you've obviously, you know, done some research on the pronunciation and they're like, uh, we thought you'd just know. <laughs> uh, well, there are 500 different languages and I don't even know my own. You're supposed no, to I know, definitely Rachel. don't know Aranda. You're supposed to just know, okay? <laughs> yeah, I was just like, what? You're a spiritual person, you're just supposed yeah, to know. Yeah, it's uh, no. So you need to get one of those mob to read it onto a tape and I'll spend an hour listening to it. So did you enjoy the shift from being an actor to being so, a director? Yeah, being an actor was really, really, really frustrating and and you get, and you'll, you'll note, note most actors last about 10 years before they really start going a bit mad. And I, I reached that mark where I was, maybe I lasted longer, but anyway, where I kind of went, ah, oh, I'm really sick of this. And I had this um, this fantastic company that I happened to be, have, be a little bit involved with, The Torch, down in Melbourne, um, and Steve Payne, who was the director of that company at the time, was like, oh, well, was I interested in being the next show? And I was like, you know what, I'm really sick of acting. I really don't think so. And then he said, oh, well, why? why? What do you want to do? And I went, well, I don't know. And I really was talking off the cuff. Oh, I don't know. Maybe I want to do directing. I don't know. I'll try, I don't want to try something different. And he was like, oh, well, why don't you direct it? And I was like, oh, what? And I had the best, best fun. Why? I suddenly felt like 
I could I could express myself. I my ideas were free to flow. I I was having fun. We were playing. We were laughing all the time. I just I, I suddenly felt like I'd been let out of a cage and my, with my gag taken off. I loved it so much, and I was like, oh. There you go. This is what I'm meant to be doing. I really, and I'm not pretending that I'm good at it or anything. I just love it. Um, I'm able to fully ex- come out with ideas, and and I re- I love to work very collaboratively. I, re- I think it's really important to get everyone's opinions, and especially your actors. You know, your actors are the ones who are invested in that one particular character or storyline, and so often they'll be- they'll tell you why that storyline's not working or why that character doesn't make sense, or, you know. So I love that process. I love that thing that we do. Do you um, like working with actors who uh, who have never acted before and there's the kind of a process of bringing them into a larger world once they are introduced to the, to the whole business absolutely. of being an actor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that was my first production. That was with five um, actors who had never, never acted before. And if I think more recently with Beautiful One Day, um, and that was three actors from Palm Island who had never acted before. I mean, one of them had, had, had a, uh, Kylie Dormagee had had a bit of training, but essentially we're, we're all new to the main stage. And I love it. I love the integrity and the truth. They're, they're like your bullshit meters in the room. Like they're the ones that keep you real. It's, it's really, it's really awesome because it's so important to, uh, to keep it real. So often theatre, we can sort of start, end up in these kind of, you know, arty. I mean, I see a lot of theatre uh, and, you know, so much of it, it's about art for art's sake. And then that drives me insane. It's like, I'm sorry, there's only limited resources out here. There's a limited time. We, you know, we're all going to get run over by a bus one day. You know, like, like if you only got so much time and only so much resources, come on, at least use it to good effect and have, and have something to say. More recently, you did a play called Corrandirk. Where, mm. where does this story of Corrandirk start for you? There's an Aboriginal community, um, a mission, which was set up outside of Melbourne, um, some uh, 18 hours walk. <laughs> I shouldn't know how many kilometres, 70 kilometres? Anyway, 80 kilometres out of Melbourne called Healesville. Um, where the sanctuary and the community is now. was yeah. called, yeah, and the community was called Corrandirk. Um, which is actually the name of the, the um, Wurundjeri name for a little bush there, a little Christmas bush. Um, and this community made history. Um, the Actually, the Aboriginal protector of the day who was overseeing the six stations at that time 20 years ago was John Green, and he had identified that there, that this, this wasn't working and we need another station. And, and I want to set up this station along with the Aboriginal people so that they become empowered in, in the running of that station. So this is a sheep station or a cattle station in those days? Something. It becomes a kind of farm where they grow their own food, they run cattle um, and try and have a any form of income basically to, so that it's sustainable because government was very – the funding of these stations was was very skimpy and, and life was very, very, very hard on these stations. And how successful was this station? It was, in fact, very successful. They had started farming hops and were excelling uh, above other hops farmers and we're actually running a very uh, thriving business in the in the sale of hops. Well, they're making an ingredient for beer, so you're going to do well with that in Australia by and large, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> we're in Australia. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so there was needless to say um, feathers being ruffled by other hops farmers as well as oh. Melbourne was expanding and this land that had been, this 5,000 acres or 4,000, whatever it was, that had been put, put aside for the Coronadoc uh, Station was getting more and more attractive. So slowly the Aboriginal Protection Board was getting their hungry eye for that bit of land and was really keen to shut them down and they were being way too successful and they were way too close to Melbourne. So you're saying this group of Aboriginal people were sort of pretty sent off to this area. They made a good go of it in any case. Particularly because of this man called John Green. Right. They made a good go of it and they became, even though they'd been sort of relegated there, they made a success of it in any case and then it was decided to kick them out anyway. Yes. Or there was the desire to kick them out. What happened there? How did they fight back? So this community made history. Incredibly politically savvy and enduring. Over many, many, many years, some two decades of writing letters, 
mastering the English language with their beautiful cursive writing and and understanding the etiquette of how to address someone of a you know in Parliament or within the Aboriginal Protection Board, how to sign off a letter through all these letters that had been sent to Parliament, along with numerous petitions, which had been delivered on foot to the door of Parliament House. So there had been several delegations that had left, uh, walked from Corrandirk 18 hours later all the way into Melbourne to hand these petitions into Parliament. And so therefore Parliament heard. And uh, they basically were circumventing um, going over the Aboriginal Protection Board and going direct to the powers that be. Did it work? And the government realised through all these petitions and letters that there was another side to the story that that they were hearing from the Aboriginal Protection Board, which was kind of like starting to argue the case that it was a really dysfunctional community and should be be shut down. So they're like, "Mm, I'm hearing another side to the story here. So they had an inquiry. What is so extraordinary about this inquiry is you get to hear the voices of Aboriginal people in 1881. It is unheard of. There is nothing like it. What is doubly extraordinary about this inquiry is that they were successful. So the Aboriginal people were successful in getting the government to acknowledge that they should have the right to stay on that land and the land was gazetted for the use of Aboriginal people to continue living on that land. Now, history being history and the Aboriginal Protection Board being the Aboriginal Protection Board um, found a way to stuff it up for them. So only five years later, in 1886, they introduced the the Half-Caste Act which basically deemed that any fellas that have my skin colour um, would be kicked off to all the stations because they're good enough to be assimilated into society. So those with white blood in them can be assimilated and we'll just leave the old fellas on the stations to basically die out. Did it then fail for lack it of... It failed. Well, there was no working, able-bodied men on the stations at this stage. What's it like for you to read those documents, those petitions written by Aboriginal people back in the 1880s in Victoria, Rachel? Oh, it's all of those emotions of absolute heartbreak, but overall incredible um, inspiration for their resilience and the determination and the the political strategising. Um, despite everything, like these are the same fellas who would who who are risking everything, because basically in these days. You had the um, Aboriginal Protection Board over you who were a bunch of farmers who had no, no way did they have your interests at heart. And then above them, I mean under them but over you, was the the, the couple that would run the, the mission. And they basically had the power to withhold your rations or not give you another blanket or not let you catch the, or not give you the money to catch the train to the hospital when your kid is dying. So there was a hugely, um, huge risk that was being taken by this community standing up to the powers that be. And they took that risk. And that is such an inspiration. Rachel, you're now, as I've said, the artistic director of the Ilbidri Dedic Company. You have a kind of a a, a group of elders that advise you. What is this, a, a board of elders? How does this work? To be honest, this is something I can't believe we haven't had the whole time. So we've now got the an extraordinary executive producer called Lydia Fairhall, and she has done and she's one of the most extraordinary Aboriginal women I know. Um, where, where we are actually because the company's now twenty eight years old, and originally we always had elders on the board. And over time and over the years and the elders being so overcommitted, that sort of has dropped away. So she has brought back to the company real cultural governance as it should be. So we now have an elders in residence, um, which is the moment is Uncle Larry uh, Walsh and Aunty Caroline Briggs. And effectively, so we always have our board, our board of governance, which is what all companies need to have as a non-profit company. Um, so the board oversees the governance and the machinations of the company in terms of technically how how our company sits and the, the, the work that we're making. But in terms of culturally and spiritually, we have our other governance body, which is our elders. And what it's meant is they get paid for their time and they have full ownership and say over who we are as a company. So they're dropping in all the time. They sit in on board meetings. They're there when one of our young fellas is feeling like they need some 
clarity about life. You know, like there, this is suddenly there's this incredible feeling of I can't even think of, of what that feeling is. I don't know balance. It feels like a healthy balance of, of balance of a family or a community. You have your your elders, you have your you know your workers, your kids. The like often people bring in their kids. You know, we've got well, we've got the elders dropping in. So we've got this sense of community and, and a feeling of well-being and health that comes with that. You know, with the alarming kind of issues of Indigenous mortality, I wonder if it's good for younger people in the, in the company to see old, honourable people being treated honourably as a way of imagining what their future might be. They might live to that age. I wonder if that's part of it too, Rachel. Certainly. I mean, this, in fact, this cultural ceremony, essentially, um, of the Kulin Nation, which is very much uh, led and guided by the elders of the five mobs that make up the Kulin Nation, which is the basically the nation that is the um, that is Melbourne, uh, broader Melbourne, greater Melbourne, I should say, and uh, and to see the elders, and then all the ages through. The, the, so there's the songmen and the um, you know the you know the, the lead dancers, um, and we see the young young fellas who are now stepping up into those roles, and then there's the young young kids, who, and it, and it makes it's <laughs> we're all a bunch of well I'll speak for myself, but for me to see those little young fellas, be able to paint themselves up, and sit down with our their, their grandmother or the elder and sit down and be weaving the belt that they're then going to wear in on the dance. I'm going to start crying. <laughs> but for them to have that, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a bag of tears. Um, yeah, you just, that, that was taken away from us. You know, Aboriginal people in this country, the right to practice your culture, to know your language, to know your stories. As a kid, so here we have these young kids, this next generation of of our leaders who are already uh, having this opportunity to know who they are and to be able to practice that, but they're not doing it in a, in this kind of weird education environment where you've got everyone's the same age. You're actually learning from your older sisters and brothers and your cousins, and and then above and then the next level. You know, the whole age range that is so how it should be. Yeah. That is how it should be. Yeah. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you, Rachel. Thank you so much. Oh, such an honour. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode from our summer podcast series. You can find the rest of the series and thousands more conversations on the ABC Listen app.